Bitcoin DMZ. This is our eighth episode as we are diving into the middle of January. Just think a month ago, Bitcoin was almost at $20,000. Crazy. I'm Ken Rakowski back in Los Angeles and joining me over here in LA, somewhere in the Santa Monica area is William Quigley. William, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Ken. What a week. Wow, what a crazy roller coaster week. What the heck happened? Everything was red. It was bloody murder when it came to everything. Everything went on sale. What happened? Uh, well, yeah. You know what? What we won't do is what happens on uh, CNBC when one day all the stocks are roaring up and there's all these prognosticators telling you these really great logical reasons. The next day when they all collapse, they contradict themselves and they tell you all these other great reasons for why it's going down. Uh, uh, people think I'm being flippant when I say it, but I say most of us, including myself, know very little about why things go up or down, but we will attempt to explain. It's sort of like looking into a black hole. We don't really understand what laws of physics operate there, but we have to make an attempt to try to explain it. So hey, we can explain it. The easiest explanation for why what happened to uh, Bitcoin, and for those of you tuning in who haven't been you know, pasted to your Coinbase wallet uh, uh, outlook on what it's going on in cryptocurrencies, what you'd see in the last like 36 hours is that the cryptocurrencies up until about 12 hours ago were collapsing. Bitcoin was off uh, about 20% from its more recent numbers, which was about 12,000. It dropped to like 9,000, maybe even into the 8,000 territory. Uh, the other giant coin out there, Ethereum, which was doing okay at about 12,000, went down. I think it also got into the eight range, was there in the 900s. And, uh, and then all the altcoins, for those of you who aren't familiar with the terms, altcoins are, for the most part, any cryptocurrency that's not, at this point, Ethereum or Bitcoin. It used to be anything that wasn't Bitcoin, but now Ethereum sort of graduated to teenage status. So it's the altcoins are like the kids. And the altcoins got pummeled, uh, but along with the big, big coins. And so when you see a, a sell-off of all the coins, it's usually for some similar big reason. Now, here's where it's like reading tea leaves. The most obvious reason is uh, the government of South Korea came out with some contradictory statements, but the big negative statement was they were going to ban cryptocurrency trading. Then it turned out that wasn't really true. The guy who said it in the government really wasn't authorized to say it. And uh, the president of Korea, one of his uh, direct reports said, calm down, we're looking at it. We think blockchain is pretty good. We're not going to go do anything you know, rash like banning the exchanges or banning cryptocurrency ownership. We're going to take a look at it, but we're, we're concerned of how hot and speculative the Korean environment is. Now, that's a pretty good narrative, for, but for one problem. <laughs> and and, and then a few people, uh, our audience, listen week by week. You might hear me repeat certain things. But one of the things I'm going to tell you is... Uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency trading, you got to think like a caveman. And cavemen don't necessarily understand the message the first time they heard it. I say this in relation to the Korea news because this news is like a week old. It was. It's a week old. And yet, what happened? So the best, I, the best explanation I can give is that News travels by Pony Express in the crypto world. 
it literally takes a week, two weeks for news to fully like get to the far reaches. And that is, I think, what happened here. Uh, it took a long time for people to really process it. The funny thing is though, if they had processed it correctly, what they would have known was that um, it actually, or by now it was all okay. The world had changed. The Korean government was back to saying, hey, crypto's not gonna be banned. So I think this, this uh, recent pop going up now in the last 12 hours is a result of, uh, I guess when they read the Korean bad news, then they read the next article and they saw, oh, there's good news too. Everything. Yeah, but wait, wait, William. You don't think over. you don't think any of this actually is due to France looking at regulating cryptocurrency, which they should. That's that's great. But don't you think it's what was going on in Europe, not just in South Korea? Look, I would say the easy answer is Korea. Uh, France, yeah, but France didn't say anything as dire as, you know, we need to ban this stuff. But if you want to, why don't you talk a little bit about France? Well, all they're doing is looking at doing regulation. France is uh, bringing a, a working group together saying, let's create some structure around ICOs. Look what's going on when it comes to cryptocurrency in the potential option markets in France, it looks like it's just status quo, what every major country is looking at doing. France is just being more vocal about it. I think it's a great direction. And if anything, it'd be nice to see if the entire European Union starts working together and actually saying, yes, it's legitimized, it's real, and let's become a, a working group to make this happen. Nothing bad, yeah. but again, no. the crypto markets went crazy. Yeah, so, and that's why, you know, of course, I followed what was going on, and I thought, yeah, it's one guy, you know, in France. Bruno Lamar, that's it, Bruno Lamar. Yeah, the finance minister. Uh, this is an idea of it. What I didn't like about his comment was, once again, it gets so old. You know, he brings up, you know, uh, Bitcoin is used to, you know, uh, fund terrorism and uh, other crimes and everybody in crypto land is a tax evader. It's like, give me a freaking break. Sorry, buddy, all those things were being done with your French francs long before Bitcoin ever emerged in this world. So that annoys me that we still hear these things when that's old news and you know what, it, it, the problems, sure, those problems might happen in the crypto world. They've been happening and continue to happen in the fiat world. They're not. They're not cryptocurrency problems, but uh, there will be some additional regulation if for no other reason in every country, people have to incorporate this new concept of cryptocurrencies into their existing laws. I would say also, though, if you look at the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve of the United States government, they periodically publish papers on important topics that affect the US economy. And uh, a couple of uh, researchers employed by the, uh, I think it was the St. Louis uh, branch of the Federal Reserve, published a nice uh, white paper describing Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and basically said, you know what, we don't really see Bitcoin as a great replacement for payments. By the way, I agree with them. Uh, but we do understand why people like it. It's a store of value. It's uh, easy to transact once you own it. It's uh, immutable. People can't reverse it. 
and uh, it's it's uh, provably authentic, so you don't get any counterfeiting problems. Uh, I found the report from the Federal Reserve to be uh, really well balanced, and they they put a pretty positive spin on Bitcoin, other than the fact that, and when they say Bitcoin, they really meant Crypto. all cryptocurrencies. The only, they said, hey, you got a real Bitcoin price volatility problem and crypto volatility problem. And that's because there's a fixed quantity of it, but the demand varies. So you see what the Federal Reserve tries to do is it tries to have enough supply of currency in the market that you never have a shortage and you never have an excess. And that way the currency kind of stays relative to other currencies kind of flat. And it's a balancing act, of course. And so uh, you could imagine an institution like the Federal Federal Reserve that loves to fiddle with their currency. They really wouldn't like Bitcoin because it's decentralized and there's no fiddling. Uh, The downside of that is it spikes like we're talking about now. It's highly volatile. The upside is maybe you have more faith in it because you don't think there's some government that's manipulating the currency in order to achieve some political goal. So as we, of course, are recording this segment of Coin DMZ, lots are happening in the market. By the way, if France came up with cryptocurrency, they would not be unhappy with it, just to let you know. Maybe Ken, Ken, why don't we rename it La Bitcoin? That didn't even break it. <laughs> La Bitcoin. Everybody would want it. Uh, hey, you know, last week when I was in Jakarta, we went to the stock exchange to ring the bell. Two days later, the exchange collapsed, literally collapsed. I'm not sure if you saw that on the news. You mean, no, I didn't. I didn't uh, explain. The building collapsed. People in the actual building. I mean, I'm not sure how many people, 70, 80 people were injured. I'll send you a video. It's crazy where we were standing. It just collapsed it was it's i don't know how to explain any more than that the building collapsed the structure collapsed when you were there did it seem like a modern oh gosh yes oh my god indonesia regardless of what people think it is right now population wise some would argue but it has eclipsed the united states because there's so many undocumented citizens out there it's probably 400 million people the market itself from sugar to coffee to palm oil i mean this is a a a modern economy but what they're looking at is crypto now saying all right so what do we do here when it comes to options what do we do here when it comes to bitcoin exchanges there's more merchants accepting bitcoin in indonesia than in japan you know there's five thousand in japan fifty thousand indonesia but I thought that was interesting. I was in Shanghai early uh, yesterday, and I asked the simple question, like you told me to. My homework is, ask if you know what Bitcoin is. Mm-hmm. In Jakarta, it was easily four out of ten people. Wow. Who recognized and it? It was young. It was anyone under 25. Yeah. Anyone under 20. Shanghai, not so much. Yeah. It was not something that people knew. Uh, I would always ask an Uber driver or out there, it's uh, uh, Din Din, I think it's called. I would ask the drivers if they would know. In China, no. In Indonesia, yes. So this is a, a task that William has asked most of us to do, and that is just ask around. See well, what, the what age I do, group. 
what right. I do, it's, it's a, you know, it's not a scientific poll, but I've been doing this now for many years. When I go to buy something, I will always ask the cashier, uh, do you take Bitcoin? And uh, of course, early on, it was just, you know, a blank stare. Surprisingly, though, even today in Los Angeles, when I'm going to a you know big retail store and I'm checking out, and the person behind the counter looks like a young, hip uh, person, and I mention it, I would say nine, eight to nine out of 10 times, it's a blank stare, which, yeah, it, it, it does shock me. But they haven't even heard of it is what shocks me. I think that this is the year. This is the year. Everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, I've heard of Bitcoin. Hey, William, do me a favor. Explain this idea of transactions per second, because with the modern credit card, when you do a swipe, there's a rail structure where that swipe goes across. And there's so many transactions that can happen with that credit card. In the early 70s, when credit card usage first popped out, there wasn't that many transactions per second. And then, of course, it's been beefed up since then. Explain the process and what it is today when it comes to crypto. Yeah, it's a great point because so much is, is being done about this problem. So Ken's referring to, I think, why is the Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other blockchain uh, networks, why are they so slow? Right. Uh, it, it, you know, we're, everybody touts the blockchain as this modern technology, and yet it seems like it's 1960s computing power. Okay, so why, why does it take so long to process a Bitcoin or an Ethereum or a crypto transaction? And it turns out, yes, the blockchain people understand modern computing power, but in a way, uh, they've crippled the system to, uh, not intentionally, uh, they intentionally did something to uh, the blockchain processing, which as a, as a, uh, a byproduct, makes it very slow. So the whole point of a decentralized system like Bitcoin and Ethereum is that it's got redundancies in it and that you never trust any one miner or any one node in the, in the blockchain network. The network is run by a bunch of servers essentially, which all have identical copies of the Bitcoin blockchain. And Whenever a transaction is attempted, you're trying to send your Bitcoin to another Bitcoin holder, uh, we, that transaction gets uh, placed in what we call a block. And a block, think of it like a bus. And every time the bus fills up, uh, it gets processed. And in an ideal world, it would take about 10 minutes from the time you attempted to uh, make a transaction until the time the Bitcoin network said that's a valid transaction and it's, you know, quote, complete. That's in an ideal world, but the network is decentralized. And so it's not as easy as saying, you know, oh, you know, uh, we're, we, we're so optimized that we know within a second or two how long something's going to take. It's decentralized. Worse, it's sort of a band of volunteers who do a lot of the processing. These are nodes. And... This is the part that makes it really problematic. The Bitcoin miners decide whether to pick your transaction up at the bus stop. They can literally drive right past your transaction. Do you know what encourages them to pick up your transaction and process it? How your, much your payments? Pay. Right. And, and most people, 
don't realize this. They don't realize that they need to sort of tip the miners. So a lot of transactions and wallets have a have like a automatic amount that they'll put in when you try to do a transaction. The trick is to actually add a few bucks. So if it's 50 cents for the transaction, you might want to add, you know, a dollar. Now I should say when it comes to Bitcoin, uh, the transactions I haven't looked today, but they've been about 50 US dollars. So if your mining fee was less than 50 US dollars, you know, it can take forever to get processed. And so this is the problem. Uh, when you go to a store and you swipe your Visa card, the Visa system doesn't ask you, well, how much are you going to tip me to process it? That's all formulaic. The Bitcoin system is decentralized, and essentially, people who help process these transactions, they have to be uh, individually negotiated with. What this does, people would, are probably thinking, what a crappy system. It is a terrible system if you're trying to be hyper-efficient and you're trying to do tons of transactions per second. It's a wonderful system if you're trying to make it absolutely certain that no one's fiddling with it. Because for a transaction to really be authenticated, you need multiple nodes, multiple of these, of these servers saying, we've tested that transaction and we believe it's, it's a good one. And, and we call those confirmations. And if you get 10, 20, 30 confirmations, by that time you're like, yeah, 30 independent people said it was a legit transaction, it's okay. A lot of people won't validate a transaction if it's only got one confirmation. So this, this system builds in robustness in terms of making sure it can't be manipulated by one central authority uh, because Visa can go into their server room and screw around with stuff. There's no way to do that with the Bitcoin blockchain because it's distributed among thousands, but you don't get the efficiencies. And that's what makes it uh, much slower of a network. Okay. So when you look at a transaction per second, what's Bitcoin capable of doing right now? Yeah, I haven't looked recently, but it's less than 10, I believe. Yeah, it's like eight to 10. Ethereum, what does Ethereum do? You know, I think Ethereum was, has roughly been in the same range. I thought Ethereum was like 50 transactions. It might, yeah, that, there might have been, the recent upgrade might have, might have done that. I, I haven't followed it closely enough, but it, even as much as a month ago or two months ago, it was pretty slow. But this is a problem, and this is one specific area that EOS, Ethereum Operating System, which uh, one of our friends, Brock Pierce, who was on last week's show, is part of. Explain how EOS can help out right. this congestion. Yeah. So I'll try to do it quickly. Rather than have a governance system, a system of, it's actually kind of like voting, uh, the, the, uh, theory, or the, the Bitcoin blockchain, you really are kind of, everyone who is checking everyone else's work and doing these confirmations that the transaction is legit, uh, all those people are in the in the Bitcoin vernacular. They're sort of voting on the authenticity of that transaction, and uh, so with EOS, they've changed the voting system. Rather than using something called proof of work, and for those who are kind of geeky, they can look into what that is. But that's what the Bitcoin miners do. They try to solve a really hard math problem, and by doing that, they're confirming whether or not the transaction is legit. Uh, that's an inefficient system. 
uh, relative to EOS. EOS uses something called DPoS, which is delegated proof of stake system. And in the delegated proof of stake system, you, you still have voting, but the voting isn't done by this time consuming uh, set of miners. And as a result, the transaction speed is, uh, is almost infinite, but let's say a million transactions a second wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. So I th by the way, guess who's gonna adopt DPoS? Who? The guys who said they didn't think it was that great of a system. The Ethereum um, uh, core devs. So Ethereum core devs, I think, have realized that Ethereum isn't gonna scale to uh, what we now call internet scale, which is tons and tons of traffic coming in unpredictable timeframes. EOS does. Dan Larimer, the founder and chief architect of EOS, um, came up with the concept of DPoS as a um, as a voting mechanism for making sure that transactions are legit. And uh, he's used it in two other coins, Steemit and uh, BitShares, and now he's brought it to EOS. So EOS is basically Ethereum, but Ethereum that can scale to a million transactions a second. And that's and, the key. That's the legitimizer. You yeah. have to have that. Yeah. And that may very well mean EOS replaces Ethereum as the number two most valuable coin. Wow. Get in it while it's hot, while everything's kind of low right now. Just to give everyone an update, I'm Ken Rakowski, is William Quigley. And as we do the show right now, let me do a quick refresh. Let's see. Bitcoin is at 15,000. No, is it? No, I'm kidding. I just yeah. want to see. I just want to see if you go. Oh my God! I mean, one. You know, it's at eleven thousand seven hundred ten dollars. Ethereum is at one thousand sixty dollars, and Ripple is at uh, one dollars and one dollar and sixty eight cents. Is there one you want me to? EOS, by the way, is at ten dollars and eighty cents. Yeah. So this is, you know, that's a decent range. And of course, anybody who's in here, who's, who's who owns these coins, hopefully, if they've been listening to us knows that you put uh, some amount of money if you want to um, have an investment in this area, which I encourage people to have, but you don't have so much that you would be destitute if you lost it. And you're betting on uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology becoming more and more important to global commerce. Ken and I certainly think it's gonna be. And uh, the way you can actually benefit personally from, it's almost like if you could have bet on the internet back in 1995, good idea by the way, uh, you're betting on the rise of blockchain technology and uh, utility of cryptocurrencies. I think it's a good bet. And uh, put some money into one of these or a basket, ultimately, better idea, of these cryptocurrencies. And uh, it'll, it'll even make you want to follow the progress of the technology closer and maybe even incorporate it in your next business. So, William, we've got a couple more topics, and we have some listener email today I wanted to go through. Let's talk about what's happening with uh, Japan and the banking system out there. They're looking at doing their own cryptocurrency, their own, what's it, is it a token or is it a coin? It's a coin and it'll be, a, you know, on, I, I, I don't know yet if uh, it will be on its own platform or not, but uh, so uh, uh, it's, uh, I believe it's, it's, it's uh, is it Mitsubishi Bank? I'm trying to remember. One of the major banks, one of the biggest banks in the world, a, uh, a Japanese bank has said it is going to issue a token, which I thought was really exciting news. 
when the global banking institutions begin to adopt cryptocurrencies, because let me tell you, it's a heck of a lot more efficient than uh, moving paper currency around. When they start doing that, you know, this stuff is going to start becoming mainstream. And Japan has been one of the most uh, accepting environments in the last year for uh, the government encouraging businesses and retailers to begin accepting cryptocurrencies and using cryptocurrencies. And so when a bank says, hey, we're even going to have our own cryptocurrency, that's pretty exciting stuff. It is. But again, like a stock, that becomes another coin that will be traded on the open market, correct? As long as it's a, it's a, you know, it's like an Ethereum-based blockchain, uh, a Bitcoin-based blockchain coin, uh, and, and as long as it's one of those where there's plenty of wallets, you know, those are, quote, like protocols, open standards, then, yeah, it'll be easy to trade that across many different uh, exchanges. I love all this. Such an exciting time. And I know that you're living this every single moment. Are you acting like a day trader with anything, William, or are you just kind of in it for the long haul? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't day trade, you know, I don't go and, you know, think, oh, is this coin going to go up or down in a given, you know, day or week? Uh, what I do, I do buy new coins, uh, and I do, uh, I, I use them. I use them in my business, Opskins, to help people who can't get access to banking or where banking, traditional banking or payment processing would be too expensive. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for new coins that do something that other coins don't. You see the most innovation today in the uh, Ethereum-based coins because Ethereum has uh, smart contracts built into it. And so you can do really amazing things with these transactions. You can program them to do a specific thing. You know? uh, that's what makes uh, what we call these blockchain-based smart contracts super exciting. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't have that as of yet. So I, I buy the coins. I, I see how well they do what they purport to do. And uh, I, what I don't do, though, is sit there in front of the screen all day and try to make money. Uh, you know, that's for some, but not for me. So this is what we do. When we come back, we're going to go through email. But also, I want to talk about something that most people may not know of. It's a little outside the crypto space, but it's a digital asset known as skins. And it's going to blow your mind. It's a $50 billion industry that you don't even know about. He's William Quigley. I'm Ken Rakowski. You're listening to Coin DMZ. Ladies, William, I'm Ken. We're here to keep you up to date with what's going on in the digital world, crypto, and other things you may not be aware of. So William is uh, the CEO of a company called Opskins. And you probably are wondering, what are skins? What is this industry? Well, first, it's a $50 billion industry that you probably have never heard of. William, what are skins? What are we talking about? So uh, for anybody who's a video gamer, they'll be going, Ken, everybody knows what a skin is. Right. For those who are not video gamers, they'll be like, what the hell is that? So most people are familiar with uh, video games and how they have these virtual 
items in them, virtual assets. Uh, some games have virtual assets that you can trade with other players. And a skin is a in-game asset, and it could be a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a virtual paint job that you would put on an item you own. So you might own a weapon like a M14, M16, M4 rifle, and in a game like Counter-Strike, and uh, you can literally get what I would refer to as a digital paint job. It's a graffiti, another way of putting it, that you put on your, your rifle to make it look different in the game. What makes a skin is that it's a unique digital paint job. You know, nothing else is identical to it in the world. Most virtual items in games are uh, commodities. You know, you have a sword. Everybody who has that particular sword, it's the same sword. Um, with skins, they're unique. They're, they may have, uh, you know, slightly different color. They may have a different pattern. Uh, in the case of Counter-Strike, they have different, what we call a, a wear factor. So there's wear and tear on it. And people use these skins in their game. They dress up their, their, uh, uh, their character, their avatar. They uh, put these skins on their weapons, and uh, they can trade them. They can trade them with other people. And over time, what's happened is because they are unique, each skin, and because certain types of skins are rarer than others, for instance, in Counter-Strike, Red is a more rare color than gray. So the more red you have in your skin, your digital item, the more it's worth. Some of these can be worth tens of thousands of dollars, by the way. And people collect them and they can go up in value when uh, an esports player is uh, using a particular skin and, in a particular game and, and that, that guy wins a tournament, that skin would be more coveted. And, and they trade them back and forth. It, it, they look in some ways kind of like cryptocurrencies. There's formal marketplaces. The difference between a marketplace and, a, and an exchange is a marketplace uh, allows people to trade uh, unique items, whereas a, a, uh, an exchange is where you trade commodities. So Bitcoin and Ethereum, those are commodities. One Bitcoin is pretty much the same as another. And, uh, and as you said, skins are a $50 billion global industry. Yeah, how do you get to that? Like, how much does a skin, let's say a game like Counter-Strike or something like that, how much are kids paying for a skin? It depends. Probably the median price would be under a, one U.S. dollar. Okay. And what do you see it go up to? It can go up to tens of thousands of dollars. For a skin, a one usage skin. It's not one usage, though, but it is a... It is a unique... Yes. And again, the best way to describe it is if, if, if you had a, like a sword in a video game and it was gray and I sold you a, uh, uh, a graffiti skin. So something that would wrap around that, that sword, that would be, you know, really cool, multicolored. And, uh, why? Because everybody likes standing out, even in the virtual worlds of video games. People like to be recognized as individuals. And the way they do that in many of these games is they dress up their avatars and their weapons with unique multicolored uh, uh, digital wrappers. And imagine you have a car 
and everybody's got pretty much in LA, it's white, black, red, that's pretty much it, right? Uh, right. Imagine you have this weird, like, uh, maybe a, like a candy apple red that sprinkles on it or something. And no one else has that, right? So you stand out. Uh, that's why people have weird colored cars because they want to stand out. It's the same in the video game world. And it just goes to show how much and how important it is for people to uh, have a distinct identity, even in the virtual world. But people are buying these skins, five, ten, fifteen thousand. You've seen over a hundred thousand dollars for a skin. You've seen yeah. this. Yes. Yes. Wow. It's, it's yeah, I mean, that would be very unusual, but it's it's uh it's something that you see because it's uh there, you know, there are people who are serious fans of mm -hmm. uh, of these video games. And of course, these video games, you gotta remember, they're like virtual worlds. There can be a million people playing these things, right? All across the world. So, you know, it's like you're in this virtual city. Uh, people know you, they recognize you. You know, it's a big deal to some players to be, to stand out among the other million people who are there in that game playing. What I did is if you go to the Coin DMZ Facebook page, I have a, a little four minute video of William talking about skins at an event I did and you got to watch it. It's amazing. He goes a little deeper into it, but he could explain why it's a $50 billion market. Yes, that is our mailbag music because we got letters and boy, do we have a lot of emails. I've only grabbed three of them and William, these are almost all directed to you because of course I'm just here to ask you questions like everybody else does. You ready? Fire away. First one's coming from Mike Edgar from Waterloo, Canada. Love the show. Quick question. What happened to BitConnect? Now, <laughs> what happened with, did you, do you know anything about this? Yeah. I mean, the, what happened was it got investigated and uh, it looked like it was uh, not doing what people said it was supposed to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were claims that it was a, a Ponzi scheme. Right. Uh, I I truly have no idea if that's true, but uh, as a result, uh, the 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 website last I checked had shut down. It shut down. People put money into this. It's are, is their money gone? Uh, is that it? it? It's not a good fact, you know. And and <laughs> you know, BitConnect was it's basically a, a way for people to. Uh, on their website, you would lend the website your cryptocurrency. Um, I think it was mostly uh, Bitcoin. Can I? It was Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin. Right? Yeah. And uh, and then they would return it back to you at some, um, you know, your original coins plus uh, plus an interest because they went and took the coins and presumably loaned them to others. I will say, I don't couldn't figure out how they could. Uh, provide the the uh, the people doing the lending such high rates. Uh, Come on, it didn't. It was a Bernie Madoff deal. That's what it felt like every yeah. time I heard it. What, too good to be true. It seemed like it was. Uh, it seemed like it was too good to be true. The uh, what was crazy about it, and, and and we're talking, you know, some of they would offer like forty percent a month. I think it was like you know interest payments. It just it just <laughs> I I mean I just don't get it. So. Um, uh, the issue, of course, is once you give a site your cryptocurrency, 
uh, it's very hard to get it back. Uh, you know, they may just go away. Uh, the facts are not good for uh, people who've lent their coins, getting them back. If uh, history is any any uh, you know evidence of that, because many times when cryptocurrency exchanges have shut down, I've been a victim. Uh, they never come back up, and no one ever gets their coins. So uh, uh, you know, I no one could really figure out how they were able to pay such great rates to people to borrow their coins for a month. But uh, frankly, I don't miss the fact that it shut down. Uh, what's crazy to me is I checked this morning and it had bounced back a bit. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, I, You're saying it's still, it's still being exchanged well, on the market? Yes. And the prices were, because it went down to what, Ken? Like, it went down like a couple of bucks or something. And, uh, but it had been up to, oh, God, I don't know. I forget thirty five dollars or something. Yeah, and, uh, BitConnect. It's at thirty five thirty three right now. Uh, How? Oh, oh, right. So sort of. It was at two hundred, but still. Uh, what's the market cap at? Uh, at well, right now it's crazy. It's three hundred and thirty two. Let's see, million yeah. dollars. How? Okay. So for a, for a, a like a, a lending institution, which is been accused of being a Ponzi scheme and which is, uh, I believe last I looked, the website was shut down. Why anybody would buy that coin, uh, <laughs> I don't know. So, All right. uh, yeah. And Well, this, this goes into Philippe's question from Rio de Janeiro. He says, how can you tell if a coin is a con or a scam? Uh, so you cannot, you can never absolutely tell, just like you can never absolutely tell that a stock is, is a great investment or a scam. What we do is we rely on what I would call third parties. So you've got, uh, in the case of stocks, you have stock exchanges. So what you hope is that they're looking at this, the stock. You, you have auditors. People who go in and they say, oh, we've looked at all the books and everything is great. And then you have the reputations of the management. You know, they look like legit people. They've got good reputations and whatnot. So you can't do all of those things in the crypto world, but you can look to see who's behind it. So what do you think about the owners, the, the issuers of that crypto? Uh, are they well known in the uh, the cryptocurrency blockchain world. You should ask yourself that. Uh, have they done other stuff in the world, in the crypto world? I think that's an important fact. And then um, you can look if their coin is on a legitimate exchange, you know, uh, an exchange that a lot of other decent coins are on. That's probably a decent fact. But today, you know, it's very early in this world, and we don't yet have all of the checks and controls that we do with physical with the stock market, we're getting them. Uh, it, the more you know about that coin, the more you know people who know people who work in that on that particular coin, you know, the more confident you can become is what I would say. You know, it, uh, a few years ago and before, you would see coins issued by uh, entities and they might have a website, but there was no uh, like section on the website where you could contact people. They didn't say where the people were, what country they were in. Made it really hard to 
figure out if it was a legitimate transparency. You need transparency. That's what you said earlier. Last question. And this one seems a bit self-serving for you, William. This is Mindy from Singapore. And she says, I hear you guys talk about wax W A X all the time, but it's hard to find. Yes. Where do you buy it? Well, wax was uh, distributed in uh, late December of 2017. So it's been less than a month. And today, buying it is a pain because it's only really on one exchange, uh, in, uh, and it's in, that's in Asia, uh, Wabi Pro. And uh, it will take, I suspect, another month or two before it is broadly available across, you know, half a dozen decent-sized exchanges. Uh, Wax is... Like a lot of coins right now that went out in 2017, there's a backlog of, of, uh, of, of coins that exchanges are thinking about adding. And uh, these exchanges don't really work with the coin issuers. You know, they're, uh, they, can, they can choose to list any coin they want when they want it. And uh, I... Uh, uh, you know, I know that it's the uh, wax is not broadly available yet. Uh, this hopefully is just a matter of time. Yeah, I'll tell you, everyone, for a dollar twenty-eight, it's a great deal. You might want to look into that. So there's our listener email. If you want to send us more email, send it to show, S-H-O-W, at coindmz.com. Before we get out of here, one quick question or one quick uh, statement. Next week, we are crossing our fingers. Last week, I was in Indonesia. Next week, where are you going to be, William? I'll be in, uh, in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. Yeah, let's hope we can do a show from you out in that part of the world. Yep. And that kind of leads into our last question. That is, uh, what industries are set for blockchain dis disruption uh, in the new year? I'd say one that uh, we might have talked about in the past is certainly um, investing venture capital in particular. Venture capital is going to have to change the way it does stuff because uh, a lot of fast growth companies that would normally be darlings of you know the venture capitalists are reconsidering that and thinking maybe they should just do an ICO. And uh, most of the venture capital returns come from just a few really exciting companies. If those really exciting companies decide to go the ICO route, VCs don't get any exposure to those deals. So I think that is an issue for the venture capitalists. And I also believe the real estate industry in 2017, 2018, uh, will begin to see the benefits of blockchain technology. Things like uh, the uh, where deeds get recorded and making sure that once they're recorded, there are never any administrative mistakes. Um, the blockchain can help make that possible, put together transparent ledgers of who owns what real estate, um, making things like fraud in the real estate market much more difficult. That is sure to come. There's so much going on. Hopefully again next week, William will be uh, broadcasting with us from Davos, the World Economic Forum. You want to find us, we're on Facebook, we're on iTunes, we're on Podbeam, we're all over the place. Coin DMZ, this is our eighth episode. And all I know is this, I'm falling more and more in love with you, William. You're an amazing man. Ken, thank you, and I really appreciated the flowers you sent me this morning. <laughs>
Oh, thank you, William. Our love goes out to everyone else out there. We're here every single week. This is Coin DMZ. He's William Quigley. I'm Ken Rakowski. Thanks a lot for listening to Coin DMZ.